as you find your seats, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, and you may want to make a pretty good tab or a good bookmark to the book of Ephesians toward the back of the New Testament on the Pauline epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Gentiles eat pork chops, General Electric Power Company. Um, however you want to remember it, uh, you may want to just throw something there because we will be here by God's grace for a while. Alright, how do you know if a movie is worth watching? How do you know? It's amazing nowadays how we have access to all the movies that are playing around us. Remember the day, for those of you who are rather, look at maybe some gray hair, you remember the day we had to look in the newspaper to see what was playing? Remember the day we had to wait for maybe Siskel and Ebert and maybe a couple of other people to tell us what they thought of that movie? Man, it's amazing change. On my phone right now, I can have access to all the theaters in town. Immediately know what is playing. I could click on it and I could read about a hundred different reviews. We can even click on a movie trailer. I mean, I can't get over it. I can watch a movie trailer from my phone and say, hey, is it, is it worth seeing? But really, the intriguing thing to me is reading the reviews. Have you read any movie reviews? How can they have so many? And some people say, you know, this movie is it's incredibly profound and insightful and, and the depth and wow, it's moving and, and the cinematography and the acting and it was, you know, four stars. The next review, this movie's lousy, save your money, uh, it's no good, you don't want to see it, it's terrible. Well, who do you believe? Who do you trust? I bet you're like me, the people you want to talk to about movie ratings are people like you, people you respect, people who know probably what you like, people who know what movie might interest you, people you respect. Well... When it comes to a review of the book of Ephesians, and it's the very briefest of reviews, again, there's one voice that sticks out to me, and it's John Calvin. In our tradition, John Calvin is, is really a superstar, an amazing man that lived in the 16th century, unbelievable theologian, unbelievable preacher, truly single-handedly helped bring revival um, to Geneva and the Protestant Reformation. I have his book on Ephesians, his sermons in Ephesians, like 300 of them. It's amazing, the depth. And he called it his favorite epistle, his favorite book. And for me, that says a lot. I mean, it's right there. If John Calvin loves this thing, we are going to love it. Uh, The book of uh, Ephesians basically is broken down into two parts. Um, We have the first three chapters of this book. Paul is going to hit us right between the eyes with God's holy and errant word. And he's going to give us great doctrine, great meat. He's going to tell us who God is and and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so the first part really deals with what we call doctrinal soundness. Amazing stuff, amazing meat for us to chew on. But Paul being a preacher and being a pastor... Um, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to give us the next three chapters is really how we live our life. The way Paul deals with it is using the word walk. He talks that we need to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we need to walk in the light of Christ, that we need to walk as imitators of Christ Jesus, that we no longer should walk as non-believers or the Gentiles do. 
that we should live our lives because of who we are in Christ in such radically different ways than the world does. Here's the reality. We're just like them. We need a Savior. We're just like them. We're sinners and broken, just like all around us. But by God's grace, we have been saved. And we have been made new. And because of that, everything's to change. And so in verses four, or chapters 4-6, through six, he's going to talk to us specifically about our lives. Also about church life. Really, the book of Ephesians is a lot about Christ and a lot about Christ's church. He's going to talk about how we need to live our lives as a family. One family in Christ. Who we should be as a church and how we should handle the mystery of God, this great gospel. He's also going to get in our face and talk about our marriages. He's going to tell husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. He's going to tell wives that wives should respect and and submit to husbands. He, He talks to children. He says that children should obey parents. He even talks to us about the workplace and how we should respond in the workplace. And lastly, he's going to tell us how to take a stand for Jesus. He's going to remind us that you and I are in a battle, and life is a battle. And if you've been around the globe a few times, you know it's a battle for all of us. And the reality is, no matter who we are, it's difficult and it's painful. Many of you just today are bringing in a baggage of pain that maybe the rest of us can't see. But Paul is going to give us God's Word and inspire us to take a stand for Christ and how we can fight for Christ in this incredible book. Let me tell you what some other folks have said. They have called the book of Ephesians the crown and climax of Pauline theology. For those of you who don't know Pauline theology, that's okay. You're going to hear a lot about it in the upcoming weeks. The Apostle Paul is the writer of this book. We believe he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's re- written several New Testament books. Um, but they're saying, many are saying, that this is like the crown. Beautiful, the climax. And I don't know, Romans is pretty good too. I mean, all of them are. They're all God's holy word. Others have said that the book of Ephesians is the distilled essence of Christian religion. You want religion in its purest and truest form? You want to really understand the gospel? Great place to start is the book of Ephesians. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the ones, the commentaries that I've read a lot and just immersed myself in, uh, he was a doctor, a medical doctor, become preacher. Uh, he preached in London in the 1950s. Amazing. Um, he called this uh, uh, a book that brought him face to face with God, with what God is and what God has done, emphasizing the glory and greatness of God. Maybe one of my favorite books that I've read on Ephesians is a little 68-page book by a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. And the name of his book, kind of odd, Sit, Walk, Stand. He says, in the book of Ephesians, what we're going to find is what our posture needs to be as Christians. We begin by sitting. Sitting in the finished work of Christ. Sitting and understanding the blessings that come to us by His grace. And then we go into our walk, our Christian walk. And finally, into our stand. We'll hear all of this. But we got to realize that no matter what book we're in, Ephesians or John or Genesis or any book from Genesis to Revelation, it's God's story. It's God's love story to us. The the story ultimately is about Him. This book is ultimately about Him. We need to start there. Oftentimes in our egocentric minds and society, we want to start with us and build our way to God. 
But in this book, we start with God and understand His quality and His character. And as we understand Him, we will understand ourselves. We also need to understand the whole story in its, in its totality. So that's why I start with a brief description of where we are going. Kind of like a road map. So that you'll be able to take each part and understand the parts as you understand the whole. But more than anything, what I want you to know about the book of Ephesians as we begin is this. It gives us an unusual vantage point or perspective. God is writing to us through the pen of Paul and using all of his ability and gifts, um, but inspired. But he's writing to us from a certain vantage point or perspective, and it's from heaven. More than any other Pauline book, this really gives us a picture from heaven of a God, how God sees us. It's not the Led Zeppelin stairway to heaven the way we build to him. It's the way he sees us. And down, and we can, our lives are changed because of that. Depending on your vantage point really does change the way you understand things. Let's think about some games you've been to. You ever had good seats compared to bad seats? Does it change your vantage point? When you can't see very well, does it change your vantage point? I remember early on uh, taking uh, uh, JP to a, a football game when he was a young man. And we sat way in the back. It was a FSU Clemson game back when FSU had a football team. And, uh, um, and we were way back and we enjoyed the game. And, and uh, at the end of the game, uh, my son JP asked me a great question. He said, Dad, are, are all football players this big? You know, they look like those little, remember, remember uh, this is, I'm really dating myself now. You guys remember that magnetic football game where the guys got, you know, that's what we were looking at. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, just humor us as old folks. This was entertainment at one time. We plug in a game and electronic pieces go across the board. We call it entertainment. But uh, it was far from reality. But the point is, from our vantage point and from his understanding, football players were really, really small. Well, from the book of Ephesians, from God's vantage point of heaven, we see that God is really, really big. And man is really, really small. But in Christ... In Christ, robed in Christ, forgiven by Christ, we are very, very big and important, but only in Christ. That's the vantage point that we get. This view from heaven. It makes God big and it makes us small until we're in Christ. We're going to look at some major themes through this book. And the first one is this, the sovereignty of God. You're going to learn two new words today for some of you. One is sovereignty. One is immutability. The sovereignty means that God is in control of all things. All things. All things. Every single thing. If R.C. Sproul rightly says, if there's one element that's uh, one atom outside of God's control, is he really God? If there's one rogue atom that's out there that's not under the authority of God, is that atom, that thing, more powerful than God? But Scripture tells us about God, and He tells us a mystery because we live in a broken, fallen world. But the reality is, is God is in control of everything. Everything. Wow. The sovereignty of God. That's what we're going to see. We're also going to see the mystery of God. This is a great mystery here. More than any other book that Paul wrote, he talks about the mystery of God. The mystery of God specifically for salvation. And I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. We're going to talk about it in a minute. But here's the mystery. God loves broken people like us. The mystery is that he'd love us enough to rescue us through the work of his son. It's an incredible mystery and how he accomplishes that. The mystery is that God is bringing all of his creation. He's he's uniting all of his creation under Christ, bringing all things together under him. 
We'll also see as a major theme, not just the sovereignty of God, the mystery of God, the grace of God. Again, the grace of God. This, this, this church is in love with the grace of God because God's word is so clear about the grace of God. That everything that God does for us, everything that God does through us, everything that God does to us, apart from his wrath, which we deserve, is God's grace. And we need to be those who sing praises to his glorious grace. And lastly, the major theme of this book, ready for this, is surprise all of you who know Jeff, but really more importantly, who know God's word, it's about the Son of God. This book's about Jesus. It's about Jesus and how all of the riches, all life is found in him. So again, you turn with me, let's look into Ephesians 1. We're going to look at the first two chapters, and we're just going to go through this entire book, Lord willing, in the next 20 weeks. I think we're scheduled to to wrap up in September. Um, But let's uh, immerse ourselves in in God's holy and errant word. Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. If those of you who remember the book of Acts tells us of how Paul was converted, how Paul came to Christ, and how he became an apostle of Christ, not by the will of man, but by Jesus himself. And now he is an apostle to proclaim the good news, specifically to the Gentiles, but to all the world. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Now let me, let me let that soak into you. This will of God is going to be a major theme that we're going to look at. That all things are done according to the counsel, the purpose, the will of God. He truly is sovereign. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. To the saints, who are they? You'll be surprised. We're going to find out in a minute. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, interestingly, in some of the, your most early manuscripts, the, the phrase in Ephesus is omitted. Uh, a lot of different theories of why. But the bottom line is, we know that all of Paul's letters were for the churches. They distributed them uh, around to one another, read them, and they're for us. All of God's Word is written for us today. So to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the saints who are in Orangewood and are faithful to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, as Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus, he prays for us. And I too join his heart in that prayer. That God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts. That we may see Jesus and the depths of love that you have for us through your Son. So send the Spirit of your Son here into our midst and open up our ears that we may see Him and love Him. That we as a congregation together may be seated with Christ even now in the heavenly realms and realize as Christ is seated on the throne because the work is complete, that we too, as Ephesians 2.7 tell us, that we are seated with Christ. We now have victory in Christ. Life in Christ. And we thank you. So Father, open our eyes of our hearts so that we may find the right posture of being seated with Christ. So that we can walk in a manner worthy of Christ. No longer in darkness, but in light. 
And Father, may You open the eyes of our hearts so that we can gird ourselves in Christ, putting on the full armor of God so that we can stand for Christ against the schemes of the evil one. Lord, would You please open my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the Gospel that You love sinners like us and make us Your saints, for which I am an ambassador of Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Are we living in scary times? Are we living in scary times? You know, our economy's in the tank. Um, Politically, uh, things are are changing. We have a new president with a lot of new hope. But sometimes we think, wow, are, are, are issues beyond a man, beyond the president's office? Often we want to ask, who's in control? I mean, really, who is in control of what's happening in our world right now? Who is at the controls? Where do we look to? Where do we place our hope? Do we place our hope in President Obama? Do we place our hope in Congress? Do we place our hope in Wall Street? Do we place our hope in Main Street? Where are we going to place our hope in times like this? Well, there's good news. We are really not to place our hope in any of those things. Because truly, who is in control? Is anybody? Let me ask you this question. What are you in control of in your life? What are you really in control of? I mean, do you really have control of your health? The economy, your job? What are you in control of? Well, the reality is, is if we stop right there, we should be, we should be scared. Because we realize that who is in control? God is in control. There's such good news. God is in control. And here's some even better news. There's not sweat on his brow worrying about what's going on. Here's some even better news. He's not wringing his hands in fret, saying, oh no, look what's happening. He is concerned with what's happening. He's got a heart for what's happening. But our God reigns. Our God is in control of all things. And that's where we'll begin. The sovereignty of God. All things are under his control, including our salvation. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by how? By the will of God. Right there in the word will of God, we will see the first and major theme of this epistle. It's God's sovereignty. God truly is in control. When it talks about the will of God, look with me through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, let's just look at this to 1. Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Verse 11, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works some things, no, no, all things according to the counsel of His Will. Who do you think Paul wants us to fix our eyes on as far as who is in control? God. God is in control of all things. Well, what do we know about the will of God? How authoritative is it? In verse 11, he wants to say all things are in his control. All things work out to the counsel of his will. Well, how effective is he? We sometimes want to look at the fact, okay, we say God is in control of all things and the world seems to be running amok. 
So either he's not in control or he's not good. We've got to realize he's fully in control. He's fully good. Uh, there is evil in the world. Uh, he has conquered and is conquering in Christ. And one day we'll put an end to it. And there's a mystery of how this all unpacks. But what we can be sure of is this. God is in control and is effective and is authoritative of all things. That's what God is in control of. I'm reading through my devotions and I've gotten through Exodus as we may rake our way through this year. And you come to the story of Pharaoh. And it's amazing to hear as the plagues come on Egypt so that God will judge the Egyptians and their gods and, and bring safety and safe passage to a promised land to His people. That God is the one who hardens Pharaoh's heart through these wills. We can continually see God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But we also see the Scripture tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, which one's true? we got to say yes. That sinful man is responsible for sinful actions. At the same time, God's hand of providence and sovereignty is over all things. God is in control of our salvation from start to finish. And this sometimes we break out in highs because of this. I met with a great couple, an Orangewood Christian School couple that are interested in joining our church. They come from a different tradition. The last thing I, they, I ask, hey, is there any question, more questions you have? Can you tell me about predestination and election? Sure, let's get right to it. You know, here comes the easy stuff. And sometimes we see a doctrine of predestination as election is cold and is God really that calculating and control? Listen, is salvation up to man or God? And it, we're going to see clearly through this study, it is all about God from start to finish. God is in control, even of salvation. He has the right to be. He's God. We're going to see more about that in the coming weeks. Let me ask you this, truthfully. What do you want to control? The more I know myself and my brokenness, the more I know how quickly I change, the more I see my frailty, I'm very, very thankful that I'm not in control. Because I'm messing it up. I'm messing it up. God is the one, ultimately, we look to that is in control by the will of God. And here's some other good news. Another word for you, immutability, meaning that God does not change. God doesn't change. We are constantly changing, are we not? We're constantly growing, hopefully in positive ways. Our bodies are growing or deteriorating. Our jobs are changing. Our relationships are changing. Our lives are changing. Life changes with us. We're change agents from the cradle to the grave. God never changes. This faithful, loving God never changes. There's no shadow of turning with Him. We should jump up and down and rejoice in this. The God who promised us yesterday will be faithful today and tomorrow. The God who was good before time began is the God who's good now and forever will be. He is in control and He never changes. We should rejoice in that reality. That is who our great God is. It should bring comfort to us. In the midst of a change in economics... In the midst of our change in our job status, in the midst of the change in our life, and even in the midst of a change of our health, God doesn't change. God is almighty. God will not fail. He is truly in control. You know, there's a couple of ways this week as I'm getting ready to preach on the sovereignty of God that I'm just reminded of this incredible truth. And I didn't ask permission to talk about Chuck, but I'm going to. You know, Pastor Emeritus... Um, had, had a rough week physically this week and, 
And yet when I pray with him at the end of the week, and we don't know quite why, there's some numbness in his body. But to hear him pray and to pray for me and to know that God is in control, it just strengthens my faith. It's been a difficult week for us personally. Um, Katie uh, woke up this morning and says, you know, I just feel like uh, we're family and, and we should share our week. Uh, so Katie goes to the doctors this week and uh, went to a couple and, and we got reports that were suspicious and and all of a sudden you realize that our, your life can change in a moment. And, and we don't know what we're facing. Um, it's not the best of news. I mean, the words the doctors are using are, are scary words, and we're scared. But God is sovereign, and, and God is in control. In the midst of this, we just know it. So we got more tests tomorrow and more doctor visits, and our week's going to be filled with prayer and doctor's visits and and maybe some news we don't want to hear. Is God good? Is God in control? Now listen, we love you, and you love us. And, and I, I'm just telling you news. I don't have a pathology report yet. And, and we, we could be blown away by your love. But right now, just blow us away by your prayers. Okay? Let us, let us, let us find out what we're wrestling with, and we'll, we'll let you know, and we're going to journey together. And hopefully it's going to be nothing, and we'll report back that, man, we got great news. But we know that whatever we have is going to pass through his hands. So love us by praying for us like, like we do. Because what? We're, we are family. Um, God is in control. And we know that. There's a mystery of God. The mystery of God that he's uniting all things under Christ to the saints. He, see, he writes this letter to the saints. What does the Bible mean by saints? Are they some people that we're to pray to? Are there some people that the church has determined as saints? No. Saints are you and me. True believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints are the holy ones, really meaning the called out ones. Those who have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. So if you have a born again relationship with Jesus Christ, if you've put your faith and trust in Him alone for salvation, as He's freely offered in the Gospels, this letter is for you. You, in God's eyes, are a saint called out holy. In verse 4, we'll say that before the foundation of the world, the Father has predestined that we would be His, to be holy and blameless in His sight. So who are saints? Well, that's what God calls His family. Go figure. Isn't it great He doesn't call us a bunch of sinners? That's what we are. Isn't it great that He looks at us in Christ and what He calls us is a completed work in Christ? He looks at us, that's, that's my holy ones. Those are my called out ones. I mean, here we are, a bunch of ragtag, broken, messed up people who continue to sin, and yet he wants to call us saints. He wants to call us holy and called out and beautiful in Christ Jesus. We should rejoice. So it's not the church who determines who are the saints. The church doesn't have that right. It's God, and he's calling his family that. We are his saints. And here's the good news. We do not pray to saints. We pray directly to God. And we offend Him when we go to anybody other than Him. His mother, saints, a medal. Listen, because of what Christ has done, He tore open heaven. We have access now. We are now the saints. We go directly to the Father through the Son. No other means necessary. Matter of fact, everything else is offensive. To the faithful in Christ Jesus... Saints that are faithful are the ones that he's writing to. And here's some other good news. Is God sovereign in control? 
Yes, say yes. He just said that. So here's the reality. Who are the saints? They're those of us who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. They're those of us washed in the blood of the Lamb. They're those of us robed in Christ's righteousness. We are the saints. That's who we are. And he who began the good work in us, because he always initiates with us, because it's God's grace that's initiating with us, he will complete the good work. So what are you saying? Who are the faithful? They're his family. Unbelievably He's even going to make us faithful. His family are not going to be lost. His sheep are going to be found. And yes, we have a prone to wander. Who are the faithful? They're the family of God. They're the saints of God. This mysterious plan of salvation. Uh, there's a, the word mystery is used throughout um, this epistle. It's a mysterious plan of salvation. Um, let me, let me uh, uh, get through this. Let me just say this. What is the mystery about this plan of salvation? It's this. God loves you and me. Go figure. Do we deserve it? No. Born sinners. By nature, children of wrath. Ephesians 2. But he loves us. A mystery. So what's the mystery? It's this. It's when and how the plan began. The plan did not begin with you and me saying, God save us. God save us. The plan began with God saying, I'm going to save, I'm going to save, I'm going to save. They're going to rebel, but I'm going to save. As much as we have the propensity to sin, He has the propensity to forgive even more. So the plan begins with God. Ephesians 1.4 Before time began, the Father chose those would be His saints, His holy ones, His family. It began with God and by God. When did it begin? Even before time started, He decided to settle love on us. There's not only a mystery of how the plan began, with who, it's with the Father and before time began. It's a mystery on how this plan was accomplished. Verses 1-7 and 2-6. Let's look at 1-7 and 2-6. This plan was only accomplished through the shedding of His Son's blood. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Forgiveness comes, this mystery, mysterious plan that God saves us only one way through His Son, only one way through a cross where He can pour out His wrath on our sins that we deserve, only one way through His death and burial and resurrection. That is the only way the plan works. Here's a mystery. God would have to become flesh and die for us so that we could be His. Unbelievable. And He was willing to do it. Chapter 2, verse 6. By grace you've been saved and raised up with Him and seated with us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age He might show the immeasurable riches of Christ and His kindness to us, that He has shed His blood for us and He's brought us to Himself. The mystery of how it's accomplished. The mystery of who it includes. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 will say this. It includes not just the Jewish folks, it includes Gentiles like you and me. Most of you probably don't come from a Jewish background. The mystery includes every tribe, tongue, and nation. The mystery includes the entire world. The mystery is that we're all going to be one family in Christ. That's the mystery, that we are family, that we are one. And he includes all kinds of sinners, all kinds of reprobates. And he makes us all one. And now this mystery is given to the church. Ephesians 3, 9 and 10 says very clearly that now this manifold wisdom of God has been given to the church that we are to proclaim the mystery of Christ. There's a great, the riches of God's grace, and we're going to see this in Christ Jesus. Um, I'll come back to it. We're going to have some time. Um, we've just begun. 
But really, the grace of God can be seen in the table. That's where we need to go. God is in control. God is good. That there's a mystery the way He loves us. And my last point was that all of this is found in the Son of God. Listen, we don't get it. We don't get it until we get Jesus. We don't get it. We don't get God's sovereignty. We don't get life and life abundantly. We don't get this redemption and the forgiveness of sins until we have Jesus that God freely offers to us in the gospel. And this table is a picture of love. It's a picture of a mystery of a God who would become flesh and walk among us. A God who would be pierced for us. A God who would shed His blood to purchase us and to cleanse us and to make us His own so He could look at us and say, Saint, holy, blameless in my sight. So that now He also does this. He also strengthens us in Him. This meal is for us to strengthen us to go proclaim the mystery the way we walk and we live our lives. And the way we love and honor Him. We're to come as a family. It's a, it's a meal just for family. So if you're yet to embrace the mystery, if you've yet to invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Lord and Savior, if you've yet to partake of Him, don't take a meal that says you have. Because this is just like a sign and a symbol that we have. That we're part of those saints. We don't deserve it. But in Christ, we've been made free and loved in His saints. So I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm going to ask the elders to come forward and prepare the table for us to to gather around. And let me encourage you as, as you uh, have a few moments of reflection as the table is being prepared, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts. Do you know the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has made you part of His family and has set you free? Examine your hearts. If you have, prepare your hearts to partake of Christ. He's not literally here. He's here spiritually. The Scripture tells us that He's seated in the heavenly realms. The work is complete. We don't have to sacrifice Him again today. It's complete. But we, He is here spiritually. And He feeds us. And He reminds us that we too are seated in the heavenly realms. So come and partake of Christ spiritually and feed on Him. Let me pray. And Father, I thank You that You are in control of all things. And Father, I thank You that You love us and You are filled with grace and mercy. Because Father, if it wasn't for Your grace and mercy, we'd be completely lost. We thank You that if we get what we deserve, we get wrath. But instead, You give us grace and mercy through Your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I pray in the next few moments that Your Spirit would so come here so powerfully and that the, the man and woman, the young person who doesn't yet know You as Savior, that even through this time, that You would pierce their hearts. Remind them that You're in control. You've provided for them a Savior named Jesus. And even now, they can embrace You. Father, I pray that for those of us, by Your grace, who know You and call You Lord, that You'd come feed us afresh. You'd strengthen us. You remind us us that we are seated with Christ right now in the heavenly realms. Give us that view and that vantage point. And we'd leave here as empowered children of the living God walking in your light and standing for your truth. Feed us through this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.